1: Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary has the largest evangelical archaeology program, also the only evangelical institution to to offer a doctoral degree in the field. But this school year will be its last. We will no longer offer degrees in archaeology because they are incongruent with our mission to maximize resources in the training of pastors and other ministers of the gospel for the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention, Southwestern announced in a statement. This change also comes two years after the seminary's former president, Paige Patterson, was forced out after the board of trustees determined he had mishandled two cases of seminary students reporting that they had been raped. Patterson, it's important to note, is the person who brought this program to the school. The following year, the new president, Adam W. Greenway, said that the school needed to, quote, recalibrate and return to its core commitments. We wanted to discuss where Southwestern's shutdown of their program leaves the state of biblical archaeology. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today.
2: And I am Ted Olson. I'm editorial director at Christianity Today. Happy to be back with you, Morgan. Happy Easter.
1: Happy Easter to you too, Ted. It is great to have you here, and I'm looking forward to the conversation that we're going to be having today. Yeah, me too. This will be fun. Ted, I think it'd be great to have a gut check and to hear your reactions to this particular news.
2: Right. Well, I mean, the Southwestern story is, you know, one that obviously we've been covering very, very closely over the last couple of years here at Christianity Today. Major institution. Paige Patterson story itself is, you know, obviously one with a lot of different angles that we've that we've talked about. But the archaeology aspect of it is a, a different one. It's a it's an important one, and for me, it touches on some of the stuff that was going on right as I was coming to Christianity today in 1995. I was, you know, just a, a kid. I was still an undergrad at, at Wheaton College. There was a lot of talk about schools closing their archaeology programs. There was an article in. A Biblical Archaeology Review that came out about that time called "The Death of a Discipline," where a guy, you know, was complaining about all of these. In that case, uh, not uh, Christian schools, but large uh, research universities either closing down or significantly scaling back their biblical archaeology, you know, or or just mid, you know, mid eastern archaeology programs. CT was writing a, a fair bit about that, you know, over the years, seen you know, biblical archaeology programs. Get scaled back more more and more and more so it is interesting to see what history repeat itself a little bit now that uh, it's happening a little bit more in the seminary and grads christian grad school world it's you know it's sad at the same time you know, biblical archaeology it's one of those things for me that I've always had kind of an interesting relationship. Every year, uh, CT site, we run a nice list of biblical archaeology's top 10 discoveries of the year. It is definitely by far one of the most read articles uh, of the year every, t- every year, even though, you know, we usually post it in one of the last days of the year. It gets, you know, bajillions of, of clicks. And, you know, I, I appreciate it. I like it, but my gut check on this one is a lot of times I read them and I'm, I'm like, it strikes me as, you know, somewhat similar to, you know, when when a preacher stands up sometimes and says, well, you know, if you really understood the Greek here, uh, the word for listen means to listen. There, there are times in which I wonder, like, OK, you know, does this archaeology tell me something that I didn't already know? You know, does this kind of Greek explanation tell me something that I didn't know? You know, I, I, I can articulate the reasons why they're good but we're doing a gut check and the gut sometimes for me is is wrestling with did i did i already know that or not you know or is it important that i know that you love i'm really eager to talk about it it's one of the people who understand and has devoted his life to to why it is
1: important i feel very lost when i read a lot of archaeology stories and i'm one of the editors of the piece that you just mentioned that we put out every single year about these like 10 different discoveries that have I guess for lack of a better word, been made known that year, since it seems like archaeology is a relatively slow process with regards to when something is found versus when it ends up being reported. But I I do often just find myself a little bit confused about the significance of everything that's on there or not, which is part of the reason why I'm looking forward to having this conversation. As far as this news in particular that Southwestern is shutting down its program, I think that we've been in a space where it seems like there's a lot of Christian higher ed programs that are just in the midst of a larger struggle to stay well-financed these days. And so I'm curious if this is a larger trend about archaeology or just about Christian higher ed and the challenges of making that work, considering that this type of program is pretty expensive. Absolutely. Anyway, Ted who is our guest today?
2: Our guest today is John M. Monson. He is Associate Professor of Old Testament and Semitic Languages at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, up the road from where you and I are. He wrote the entry on First Kings in the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary, which is sitting on my desk as I record this. For Trinity, he was at Wheaton College, where he received the Faculty Achievement Award in teaching. His archaeological fieldwork has taken him to Syria, Lebanon, numerous excavations in Israel. He grew up in Jerusalem. He was born a missionary kid in Zaire, has written some interesting stuff if you search him on Google Scholar. So love to have him here. Thanks, John, for joining us on Quick to
0: Listen. Thanks to you both. Uh, Happy Easter to you, and it's great to be here.
1: John, I would love to hear from you as far as your initial reaction to this news from Southwestern. Did this particular news surprise you?
0: Not at all, though I don't have particular insider knowledge. I do know the directors of the program very well, Steve Ortiz and Tom Davis. And I also actually knew Paige Patterson from occasional contacts as well. And I always said to my dear colleagues there, there could come a time. There. And it appears that that indeed the case. So it was no surprise to me from that metric. Institutions make priorities and things come and go.
1: I'm curious if you can just kind of help us understand the larger landscape and history of biblical archaeology. It's First of all, what is it and, you know, why is there this adjective that says biblical in front of it and what separates it from other different types of archaeology?
0: I suppose one should start with saying that archaeology is essentially dirty history. Humanity has been doing history for a long, long time. Even even in the pre-writing eras, people were doing history through iconography and various things and storytelling and so forth. So archaeology, then, is the distinct exploration of human culture within the framework of, of, of seeing what has gone before through artifacts and uh, and context so you know history is largely accessible through texts as but history can be supplemented with h- real human activity and human interest types of things that are recorded in artifacts and in other contextual resources even in geographical things sometimes you can see sort of why did humans behave this way and not that way so archaeology has been there for quite some time but it really took off in a sense with the exploration of particularly the European and American worlds into both the New World, so-called, in the Americas, and then the rest of the world, began to find monuments and began to scratch around and find out that there was a lot that could be just randomly sort of extracted from the ground. So that led, of course, to a natural question in the Middle East. Well, what's connected to the Bible here? How does this work? So with the you know, advent of you know better communication and better transport and things like that, and Napoleon Bonaparte was over in the whole ancient Near Eastern or Near Eastern world, and had his contingent of scientists who were exploring, drawing the Egyptian reliefs, for example, and trying to decipher inscriptions and things of that sort. So it's really the 1800s where things began, then the 1900s where the science really started coming into it more and more in a person named Sir Flinders Petrie developed in Egypt sort of a, a more scientific approach through understanding artifact. The layer of ancient civilization became accessible in a more scientific way through the work of Petrie when it came into the Eastern Mediterranean. So that brings us into the 2000s with a lot more technology, a lot more interest in human systems, sort of anthropology and things of that sort. What makes biblical archaeology peculiar is that it's linked both to the history and to the text that we see in, in the Bible.
2: So, yeah, so that was a, that was an epic overview. Tell me, I mean, is is it still something where there's growth? I mean, are you still seeing undergrads passionate about getting into this field? Are there still, you know, a fair number of grad students who are eager to get into this? Or is it a, a harder sell for, for folks in their late teens, early 20s, mid-20s?
0: Well, again, I think that's a little bit, partly we have to say the discipline is reflective of the humanities at large. Partly it's You know, tied to the biblical archaeology per se is tied to the fate of biblical studies and, you know, the history of the church, perhaps the Jewish community as well. Again, biblical archaeology is a subset of what today people would call Near Eastern archaeology. You know, you go to some of the conferences and it's really talking about, you know, this or that people group in this geographical context. And the biblical text per se is not really part of the conversation, except, you know, coming in once in a while alongside other. Ancient Near Eastern texts. And there's a whole generation of ancient Near Eastern archaeologists who are at evangelical schools who are really, you know, doing Near Eastern archaeology as a professional guild. And the Bible, again, take it or leave it, is a part of that.
1: So, Jonathan, maybe you can just give a little bit of a sense of how biblical archaeologists determine what is significant. And then with that in mind, if you would be able to share maybe three or five of the most significant discoveries in the past decade and what made them significant and for what reason, you know, I'd be interested To know, for instance, when we're judging significance, does it matter what the object was or what was on the object or where it was found? That type of stuff that goes into that. And then since I would just say, I'm such a novice to this field, you can just spell out any kind of archaeologist insider language that would also be helpful.
0: Uh, Sure. The the basic movement in archaeology has gone from a treasure hunt. An accidental treasure hunt, sort of Indiana Jones, you know, X marks the spot to a bona fide, you know, sort of legit scientific pursuit. And so, you know, today's archaeologists want to have a research question. Am I exploring village life in the first century of Jesus? Or am I exploring an historical problem that is related to this site? So it's no longer sort of an ad hoc treasure hunt. Now in Israel and in all over the Middle East, some archaeology comes about through just necessity because of highways going through. I've had a friend who had three days to excavate a massive Middle Bronze Age tomb from the days of Abraham because a highway and bulldozers were going through there like three days later. And I mean, what do you do? <laughs> so you dig, 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 and then publish and dig. <laughs> what we get is a result of a research question or the necessities of, of human you know, development in, in the lands of the Bible. But some of those excavations have yielded things in a very purposeful and strategic way. So for example, it's a little more than 10 years ago, but one of the great finds is the famous Tel Dan inscription. So Tel Dan is the entry point into the land in the north. Danites fled there figures in many biblical texts, a veteran archaeologist, Avram Biran, was digging there. And there came up an inscription in a courtyard that mentioned battles between the kings of Israel and the kings of Aram, Damascus. And in that text, legit text dating in its script to the periods attested there in the uh, ninth century BC, what did it say? And I utterly destroyed them. So-and-so, so-and-so from the house of David. You look at that, you say, okay, doesn't prove everything in the Bible, but it's, it's another, you might say, another data point, another dot you can connect and bring more refinement to your picture of the biblical world. A more recent thing would be, you know, tell Gath, Asafi, Gath, ancient Philistine Gath. Aaron Mayer of Bar-Ilan University has excavated the Philistine city of Gath and told us a lot about the Philistines. Gabriel Barkai, another big one in the last 10 years is when the Islamic authorities emptied out lots of material, dumped the material from the Temple Mount out into the wilderness. My own mentor, Gabi Barkai, one of my mentors, got trucks and brought tons and tons of that material to a undisclosed location and is having people sift it and has revolutionized our understanding of the period of Jesus and the Temple in Jerusalem just from sifting through the refuse material from a building project on the Temple Mount. Another really big one is Tel Telkeiafa, Q-E-I-Y-A-F-A. In the lowlands of Judah, it towers above the place where David met Goliath, and it represents an Israelite fortress that expanded Israel's control westward towards the Philistines right during the period of Saul and David. And not only is it a strategic site, and we have the name for it, But it also had, there was found there a small shrine that sort of had a a small model of sort of is attuned with the ultimate model of the temple or tabernacle. And then also there was an inscription there found that had statements like, you know, take care of the orphan and the widow in your midst, which sounds like biblical material, but it was from an inscription datable with the pottery and the inscription letters to the time of Saul and David. Things like that are grounding out our understanding of how people lived, what motivated them, what were the geopolitical developments and even some of the religious developments. So those are all things that are are giving us again very good anchors for making the Bible come to life.
1: John, I'm curious, are there also several archaeology archaeological discoveries from the past decade that you would say have challenged or undermined the biblical narrative?
0: Well, we get things like that in, the, in these past decades. We get some questions like that for, let's take uh, one of the classic examples. Okay, Jerusalem, you know, you have this city, this massive city that's destroyed, you know, 20 times. How are you going to find anything remaining there? Well, this is a huge challenge to us because we get very, very little information From architecture, even small finds, you know, even relatively scarce pottery from the time of Solomon. And what do we read the time of Solomon? Well, it was a city the swimming in gold, where gold was more plentiful than stone. And it was the center of the Near Eastern world at that time for a brief season. Well, does that measure up to what we excavate in Jerusalem? Absolutely not, from what we have today. Now the Temple Mount, you can explain it because it was shaved away so many times, you wouldn't expect to find much there. And again, Gabi Barkai, his his excavation, his sifting is helping with that. But down in the City of David, where David David was, there 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 is the water system and various things, but but relatively little from the days of Solomon. So, our options are to say, well, hmm, for people of faith, the glories of Solomon and David, that's a challenge. Solomon's empire was a large kingdom governed by a relatively small town. We have examples of that from other Near Eastern cultures. And it was a very, very wealthy town, but we shouldn't be looking for Nineveh or Babylon, and we shouldn't be looking for New York City. We should be looking for small regional power and a relatively small city that was immensely wealthy for a brief time. Now, that may sound like a desperate conclusion. That's just putting one and one together and then one continues to excavate. Things can be turned around in the twinkling of an eye in biblical archeology span every week. There's more to be found. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection
2: of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict.
1: When there's a weak Israel, Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't. I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there.
2: This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up. And catch the new episodes as they come, all in one place. Well, I'm I'm just curious about how the current, you know, there's a bunch of stuff going on currently that I would assume is affecting biblical archaeology. One is the kind of Middle East geopolitical climate, and then the other one is, you know, more recent, and that's the coronavirus isolation. I assume digs are on are on hold. Is that is that what's happening? And 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 how does the larger kind of Israel and Palestine conflict affect you know the way the way in which uh, biblical archaeology can can flourish?
0: This is a field, let's say, that's been around since Napoleon Bonaparte, you know, so uh, 1799, and it's, so it's weathered a lot more than this coronavirus. And there's always been an interest in the Bible. I would say in the in the broader scope of things, archaeology has had to adapt to the Middle East, and especially in an age where sort of nationalism, in some respects, has taken root and pride in one's culture. So be it Turkey, Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon... Israel, Syria, these countries are, are are proud of their heritage and kind of upset that the, you know, the Western powers just sort of pillaged their heritage for a time to fill their museums. But at the same time, they take pride in it. And there are lots of local archaeologists. So you will not find a more excavated land than the land of the Bible, and particularly a modern day Israel than what you have today. And then you have just new digs popping up all the time, and some of them out of necessity for, as we say, construction and so forth. So I would say it's, you know, it, just like the larger academy and just like a world travel archaeology has weathered many many storms and it will weather this one as well i think the bigger challenge is going to be you know supportive institutions continued uh, interest in the part of uh, of Christian and particularly evangelical institutions, and then with this virus right now, some digs have canceled, or are holding off, or postponing for a few months to see where it lands. My own students are, you know, a little bit up in the air, wondering what to do. I, I would guess a good number of them will be canceled just because you need a lot of momentum building up to excavation. But you know, in the larger perspective, this will be this will be one summer out of a hundred summers that you can't go.
1: I'm curious about some of the kind of debates and potentially, I don't know, tensions within this like larger world of biblical archaeology. I found it really interesting when you were talking earlier about some of the I don't know, potential tension within these biblical archaeology circles with regards to apologetics being A goal or one of the main objectives for archaeologists, but I'm curious if there's other just disagreements over philosophies that are there or dating methods or anything else that the average person wouldn't necessarily know about.
0: Now, there are some broader schools of thought. Um, I'm from a mix because I grew up in Jerusalem, but I was trained partly in Jerusalem, partly in the States. So I'm part of that sort of, you know, Near Eastern Israeli world. I speak Hebrew and Arabic, but I'm also part of the sort of, uh, you know, evangelical and American world. So I go back and forth. I mean, I, I think there's more more layering in a American dig in the staff than there is in the site, whereas an Israeli dig is much more like, hey, you know, entrepreneurial, a very different culture. Part of it, too, is a disciplinary kind of debate as well. Most archaeologists, most sort of full-blown biblical archaeologists, we can say, are primarily examining artifacts and their bread and butter is sort of doing field archaeology and then hopefully publishing it afterwards. But then there's a strand who are trying to bring text and archaeology together. And I'm more in that tradition. And that's, you know, more the the tradition of let's, whatever ancient Near Eastern text it is, let's try to understand this ancient text in its context. So for me personally, I don't have a problem practicing, quote, biblical archaeology partly as a a sort of handmaiden to biblical exegesis and biblical interpretation.
2: In my work as a journalist, there are ways in which being a journalist helps me read the Bible better. You know, I've got all these questions popping into my head, but there's times where as a journalist or as an editor— I feel I feel like sometimes I have to set some things aside, not not necessarily you know because the Bible is uh, is creating problems, but it's just the answer, the questions I'm coming to the to the text are are a little bit different. Not not a great idea to necessarily come to the Bible as an editor saying like how how could this have been said better and and that kind of thing to edit, edit my Bible with my with my red pen and say oh you know the structure here is all messed up. I'm curious about how for you. You know, being in this world of biblical archaeology has helped you read the Bible better. And is there any area in which you've had to be like, okay, let me let me break out of archaeology mode for just a second so that I can maybe read this text in a, you know more devotionally? I, I don't know. Do you, you ever have that experience, or is
0: archaeology just so intertwined with good Bible reading that that it's all good news? <laughs> it's all it's all good. One might think of it with an analogy to music. My son plays French horn. My other son plays cello. And, you know, when they're playing for a recital, they may have one sort of mode. When they're playing at church, they may have a different mode. When they're horsing around, they may have a different mode. Then when they're in their lesson, they're in an entirely different mode. So, I mean, I think it's, you know, much of the same technique one can invoke with a, a, a different mindset in each, in each case. But I don't think those boundaries need to be firmed up at all, at least not for me. I think for every archaeologist and every Bible scholar, there's something beautiful about exploring the sometimes challenging and course, mysterious uh, word of God, we might think of it in terms of, again, encountering a person. If I ask each of you to give a story of your life through the lens of as a son or as a daughter, what was that like your whole life till now? Or as a, you know as a friend to somebody, or as professional, or whatever it may be, or as an athlete, Uh, you would emphasize different things. And the same person would tell a very different story, depending on what their objective was in telling that story. So for historiography and history, the same thing is in play. I mean, the Bible is telling a story to show who God is, And how his creation and creatures and humanity should behave in response to him, in a sense, who they are. So what we do is we, you know, when I, for example, I mean, I read the other day, read through Ecclesiastes in Hebrew, because I teach biblical exegesis at Trinity. And I read through Ecclesiastes just because... I wanted some perspective on life with everything going on. And I, you know, I'm over 50 now. Hey, Ecclesiastes is my book, right? So, uh, you know, I just read it in Hebrew and I paused periodically. I did not parse one verb. I did not pause and try to translate. I just read it in Hebrew and loved it and derived great spiritual nourishment from it. And all kinds of mental associations came back with this connection to this cultural thing or that cultural thing. But it was a natural synergy. There was nothing artificial about it.
1: As we wrap this conversation, I did have one last question for you and it's about forgery. And I'm just curious about how common this is and how often those types of accusations get leveled against others.
0: Yes, I mean there are, you know, there are forgeries and there are forgeries. I mean, for example, a Dead Sea scroll's, you know, manuscript that is found in the earth and curated for sixties, you know, well almost whatever, eighty years. That's a different element than um pot that is comes up in the antiquities market and has no, you know, provenience and is just, you know, sort of analyzed on its own merits. So there there are forgeries and forgeries. Texts, of course, um in some respects, it might be harder to be forgeries, but there's quite an industry out there in the antiquities market. If you go you know, anywhere in the Near East, you're offered coins, you're offered this or that and pots and this and that. And, you know, most of us can get a pretty good sense that something's a forgery. When it comes to text, it's even harder because it's hard to make for example, an ancient inscription on a piece of pottery or inscribed in a rock look ancient because there's something called patina. There's a, you know, when it gets wet, when different climate conditions, it creates a little history for itself, almost like rings on a tree, you might say, although it's not organic. You know, you can you can slice through that pretty uh, pretty quickly. So I'd say there's a vast forgery market out there of knickknacks and this and that, and then there's a much more particular and sophisticated forgery market out there. You know, people who are good at what they do for the most part can discern this. One of my epigraphy seminars in my, you know, in my PhD days, Professor Cross pulled out an inscription and asked us if, you know, what we thought and had us read it. And he was asking, so what is this? And I said, oh, mevaseret zion. It's a messenger of Zion. That's a that's a sprawling suburb west of Jerusalem. He said, no, no, no. It's the messenger of Zion from Isaiah and it's in this inscription. And I said, oh, whoops. But it turned out that was a forgery. We had to discern. I mean, we literally went through many inscriptions trying to determine whether it was a forgery. With Those forgeries are out there. I I would say that, you know, some of the forgeries reside in personal collections and some of them reside in even small museums. And in those cases, you know, good copy of a manuscript, as long as you're not, you know, spending too much money on it, it can be, you know, A good illustration in a case, as long as it's, you know, identified as such. And uh, it can be an educational tool as well. I'd just like to double back to the Southwest Baptist Theological Seminary. I mean, Professor Ortiz, a classmate of mine, Tom Davis, I mean, they curated a significant collection there. Really are on the more, you know, not the apologetic side of biblical archaeology, but on the illumination side. And they curated a, a museum that, you know, just is a tremendous benefit to students interpreting the Bible in a seminary and larger communal context. So yes, forgeries abound, but they're very good ways to discern most of them.
1: Fair enough. Well, thank you, John, for this really interesting discussion about this world. I think it's going to pique a lot of people's interests. If people have feedback, please send us an email. We're at podcast@christianity.com. At we are also on CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments. We ask everyone to share something that has recently brought them joy. Ted, are you ready to go?
2: As I said last week, the days run together. I mean, it it, it one of the problems of coronavirus isolation. Morgan, you 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 are you are a very social person, so your days may may differ more than mine. But my days they seem extremely similar one day to another under this uh, isolation. But Easter was special. I, I hate to, you know, sound like a very predictable editor of Christianity today here and go with a very Christian-y answer to this question, over over spiritualized, but it was not just that. It was our Easter in my tradition really hits the night before with our Easter vigil, a service. Having the bells ring and the lights come up and the joyous celebration of, of He is Risen did really help to wake me up to some realities. <laughs> now, you know, there will there will there will not just be a day when we leave our houses, but there will be a day when we have better houses in, in the New Jerusalem. That was a lovely precious moment. And then we, we went outside on, on Easter at uh, at noon and rang our bells and shouted hallelujah. Uh, that was great. <laughs> I've been a little bit sad about this isolation, but Easter man did i need easter and yeah there's still a little bit of Lentenness in the couple days since saying yeah we're still at a little bit of a Lent here being cooped in our house but easter easter struck me as very real this year so that was my precious moment i am uh, at Ted Olson. That's T E D O L S E N. How about you Morgan? What was your what was your precious moment this week?
1: I would say I had the best Easter I could possibly have without having an in-person conversation with someone. It was actually a pretty good day, although I think it's just strange to have had multiple of those days in the past couple weeks, you know, I would say that was a very rare occurrence beforehand. And now it feels like it's something that happens at least once or twice a week. My Easter, though, having said that was pleasant in that I got to go on a run, which I'm trying to run almost every single day. And I made a delicious tomatillo white bean chili that my sister sent me the recipe for. And I spent a lot of time on Zoom with my other sister, had some other calls with people and so forth. So It was pleasant. I got to be out and about. The sermon that preached that day for my church focused on Mary's reaction to seeing Jesus and talked about just about her grief and how Jesus meets her there in that. I found it actually very moving to focus on that particular response. I also appreciated that my pastor mentioned the fact that he didn't want to celebrate Easter on Easter Sunday and wanted to postpone it and then had a chance to think about all the different circumstances in which the Easter sermon has been preached for hundreds of years about the fact that we're still preaching that in this time. And I thought that was a really powerful point as well.
2: Amen on
0: that. Where are you on social media,
1: Morgan? I'm at MEPAYNL. Yeah, go ahead, John.
0: Well, I suppose the great joy for me has been, although the older son would prefer to be Ongoing at U of I doing aerospace engineering. He's got to do it from home. And the other son would probably prefer to be in his high school (laughs) hanging out with friends. It's been just a tremendous joy to have so many different conversations come up so much food production taking place in house things of that sort. it's been a treat and we even uh, they even sat through ben-hur imagine that now that's an act that's an act of love huh but i recommend it to everyone the epic historic film ben-hur sure it's outdated sure it's hokey in places but it's a very powerful story so we watch that watch the jesus film so it's been just great joy to just moments that are outside of the merry-go-round of suburban life you don't get those moments often enough. I actually was joking that maybe maybe this whole virus is a conspiracy to get us into the six week vacation mode that the Europeans have been doing for, you know, 50 years. Maybe maybe that's the maybe it's a conspiracy to get us all to, you know, <laughs> lighten up a little bit. Right. So that's been a great joy. And I'll, I'll put in you know a combo of of social media and joy here. Um, my father um, taught in Jerusalem. My parents were in Jerusalem for 31 years and that's still home for me. I'm still in exile I still feel especially in Easter and Christmas like I'm in exile away from from Jerusalem and the land of the Bible. They're back in the states now. They live in Wheaton. You know, my dad and I continue to teach through something we call Biblical Backgrounds. It's just those two words together, biblicalbackgrounds.com and I'm I'm there that I would Put that is my social media connection and of course Trinity Evangelical Divinity School as well but it's been a lot of time to be on Zoom and uh, work on various projects with my father who's in his 80s and is one of the very few remaining you know really full-blown biblical geographers and uh, it's been a lot of fun to just be producing things and, and learning things together even though it's through the screens so that's been a great joy both directions of the generations.
1: Well, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The transcript is available by Boomi Ashola, and the music is by Sweeps. If you want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is by subscribing to Christianity Today magazine. And we invite you to do that by going to orderct.com slash podcast. If you want to boost the podcast or support that, obviously, you can always share this show. But also, we invite you to go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review it there as well. We will see you all next week.
0: This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?